verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. All right, now Tony's going to come on up and preach. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy to trust You this morning with our weakness, with all of our weaknesses. Our weakness in understanding such lofty things that in many ways belong to You, but, but even in this text, you have, you have stooped to explain them to us. So help us, O oh God, by Your Holy Spirit to understand exactly what You want us to understand, what belongs to us and our children forever. And help us to trust You with the things that are not our business. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you may, have, uh, you may remember... Uh, the old movie, The Karate Kid, came out in the 80s. Yes, there's a new version. Don't worry about the new version. The original was best. But if you don't know the story of Karate Kid, it's very simple. You have this young man, about 17, Daniel and his mother. They move to California, and Daniel gets bullied, and he gets beat up by this guy that knows karate really well. And, and this guy that works at his apartment complex, Mr. Miyagi, 
uh, comes and, and he breaks up the fight and kind of you know, does his thing and all these kids run away. And Daniel looks at him and says, uh, I want what you've got. And he says, okay, I'll teach you. And he comes to his house, and you remember the scene. He's ready for his big training. He wants to learn karate. He wants to be like Mr. Miyagi. He wants to go take care of all those bullies. And he says, all right, take this thing of wax and this rag, and you see that beautiful old 50s car? I'm going to teach you how to wax a car. And you remember, wax on, wax off, wax. Yeah, you get it, right? If you haven't seen it, you're like, what's he talking about? It's okay, just watch the movie. But what Daniel doesn't understand is in that moment, it doesn't make sense. He doesn't understand what Mr. Miyagi is teaching him. Mr. Miyagi is saying, you have to trust me. And one day, yes, when you're in that big tournament, you do the crane move. One day it's all going to make sense. When that guy swings at you and you go, wax on. Wax off. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Today, God is giving us something that we don't fully understand and really won't until glory. But He does help us to understand it the best we can. But I want you to understand this. It's not, as one of my friends said, emotionally satisfying. You don't always going to walk out of here like, okay, that's awesome, I get that. Not necessarily. But what we have been seeing and what we continue to see in Romans and all through Scripture is that God is sovereign and that we are responsible. And specifically, we are responsible for one main thing, one primary thing, and that is to trust our sovereign God. So that's the three things we're going to see today. Paul does it through kind of three pictures here, three Phrases, the potter and the clay, verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, he starts with this third question in succession. There's four questions again in the text. And the third question that Paul poses after hearing, remember verse 18, if you back up, where he's talking about Pharaoh, where he says, God has mercy on whom he wills. And yeah, there's this little thing about God hardening people. And I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, go back and listen to last week's sermon because it, it really, I think there's good explanations from other sources as to what that actually means. But Paul brings up this question in response to that, okay, ultimately you could ask, well, was Pharaoh even responsible, right? Does God hold any responsible? It doesn't seem right or fair. If God is ultimately sovereign, who can resist His will? How can you fault a person? You could even go all the way down that road and go, we're just puppets, right? You've heard those arguments. You may have even had those arguments and thought those things. And look what Paul does in verse 20. He answers with a question. And this is the question. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And I want you to understand, he had never met these people in Rome. So he... He doesn't necessarily have a person in mind or maybe even a group of people. He has all Christians in mind with this. You see that? He's been to church after church after church. He sat down over coffee and he's had conversations. And these are the questions that people raise when the doctrine of election comes up. And it's a, fi it's a fine question at one level. But Paul's answer is not emotionally satisfying. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? In other words, who are we, humanity, to talk back to God? 
He answers with a picture. Listen to what he says in 20 and 21. God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the molder, and we are molded. He is the creator. We are creatures. He is the sovereign king. We are subjects. He is the father. He is the parent. We are the children. And notice he, my wife brought this up to me this week. Why did he pick the potter? Because a potter is an artist. And we understand the phrase, the term, the idea that an artist at one level has what we call creative license. And that's the argument Paul is making here. Doesn't the potter, doesn't the artist have the right to do what they want with their portrait or their landscape or their clay? God is the potter. He can make out of this lump of clay what He wants. He can make out of this lump of clay what He wants. John Stott said it like this. Here's my paraphrase. God does not have to reveal the principles by which He chooses to do anything. He doesn't have to. He is the potter. We are the clay. When my wife and I lived in the Mississippi Delta, there was a famous potter there. The place is still there. Not sure if he is living, but it's called McCarty Pottery. If you Google McCarty, it's going to be the first thing that pops up. This is, this is not just like a regional thing. He is famous all over the world for his beautiful pottery, and it's in the middle of nowhere in Marigold, Mississippi, this tiny little town. I don't even know if there's a store there. But you go to his studio, and there's like bamboo everywhere. You can't even see it. That's beside the point. It's just kind of cool. And you walk in, and there's this beautiful pottery everywhere. Can you imagine me walking into there or someone that wants to buy pottery and saying, Hey, Mr. McCarty, I'm not sure why you made this like this. Hey, I want to tell you how you should start doing pottery. Even... A lot of people don't, I didn't understand this, but he has this little black squiggly mark in all of his pottery. And the first thing you do is like, why did he put a crack in the pottery? Why did he make what looks like a, a flaw in the pottery? But imagine, take that a step further. Imagine if he's on his wheel doing his pottery and all of a sudden the clay starts speaking. That's the image Paul is giving us. As I said, it's not emotionally satisfying at one level. See, at one level, you can get the image and you can understand and you can even accept the argument, but we struggle with being what? Clay, don't we? We are independent, self-reliant, individualistic Americans. We are not used to sovereigns and kings and potters especially when we look at what God makes and we see what we think is a flaw. Why did He put that squiggly line there? Why did He let Adam sin? Why did He let suffering enter the world? These are good questions that we struggle with. We struggle with God being the potter. Let's just admit it. And when God puts a squiggly line in your life, and maybe you, like Paul in verse 20, ask the question, why does God make me like this? 
Why did God give me this body, this health condition, this family situation? There is an element in which this is emotionally unsatisfying, but at another level, it is very emotionally satisfying. Do you know what it means? God is the potter. You are the clay. What that means is God is a beautiful artist who is in control of all things, even what appears to be flaws. And that God is in control. You don't have to be. Parents, you really, really, really are responsible for your children. Parent them by the grace of God. Parents, you are not ultimately in control of your children. God is. See, we can rest in the fact that God is the potter. And the potter, the artist, has perspective that we can't have in the moment. Because the potter sees the end and what he's making or she is making. God is the potter, we are the clay. That's the first thing Paul says. Everybody emotionally satisfied? Second thing, it's going to get a little trickier. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. 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 Verses 20 through 29. When we look at the next section here that Paul goes into in his argument, it is very tempting, especially as I studied this week and last week, it is very tempting to get in the weeds. And when I say weeds, I do not mean that negatively. There are hard things in the Bible. There, you're on a golf course and there's a rough. And the rough is challenging. But it's a part of the landscape. It's a part of the course. And if you ignore it, you're not going to have a good golf game. You have to understand the rough and why it's there, right? In the same way, we're in a challenging spot. But I want you to understand that what Paul doesn't do is stay in these weeds. He doesn't dig into these weeds and try to explain every element. He, remember, God is the potter. But he is saying, hey, I know there's a challenging thing here for you, but I want you to understand as I explain it, that as I explain it, the most challenging thing about it is a sub-point that is serving a greater point and as we work through the next couple of verses, I want you to understand that the greater point that Paul is driving at here is this. That this artist, this potter, this sovereign God and king is doing something unimaginably beautiful with all of the clay. And what he is doing is this. He is preparing for glory people like you and I who should never, ever be chosen for such glory. That's the main point. Now let's get to the sub-point, verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His powers, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? That's a tough couple verses, right? The question that, is, that comes up in our minds and sort of the issue here is it seems like God is predestining people to destruction. In other words, God predestines, just like He predestines 
a Christian to glory, God is predestining people to destruction. That they don't even have a fighting chance, so to speak. What's the deal with responsibility? And the answer from these verses, and I think all of the Bible is this, God does not in the same way predestine people to destruction in the same way He predestines people to glory. And there's a lot of weeds you can go into there. A lot of debate about all of that, okay? But look at verse 22. I want to show you a distinction. And again, what I'm saying is this. God is sovereign over all things, even people going to destruction. God predestines some people for glory. Look again at verse 22 and verse 23. There is a difference in these two phrases. What does he say in 22? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What does he say in verse 23? Vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Do you see the difference? There is a difference. One indicates that God is sovereign over all His just judgment in the world. We saw that with Pharaoh last week. That Pharaoh, just like every one of us, comes into this world sinful, and when he sees God's power and glory, he hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, and God is sovereign all of, over all of that. And part of that is God says, okay, I'm going to harden your heart for hardening your heart toward me. God is sovereign over Pharaoh's judgment. And yet there's a distinction when it comes to his people. His sovereign electing grace says that you and I, if you're a Christian, were headed down the same path that, that Pharaoh was heading down. And for some reason, in God's own knowledge and understanding and his own heart, he chose before the creation of time to ordain you to be his children and to bring you all the way through to glory. Go back to Romans 8.28 and that whole passage. Those He justifies, He calls, all that. He glorifies. It's done. Now, if you want to go further into that rough on the golf course, Matt Griffiths, raise your hand. Right there. Every other Sunday night, you're studying a document that's going to go into that and you can have those good conversations. But I'm going to tell you what Matt's going to say at the end of the day. I can't answer all your questions. He is the potter. This is what I can tell you the Bible says. The best we can do, he's the potter. But still go to his study. All right, that's the sub point. Okay? And I want to remind us before we go to the sub point. There are a lot of Christians that don't want to talk about this hard stuff. Because it's hard. We want to love Jesus. We want to evangelize. We want to talk about hard doctrine. Hard doctrines are in the Bible. But hard doctrines, you've got to understand this, are supporting the gospel. Look at the point he's making. The sub-point that he's digging into is supporting the main point. And what's the main point? The main point is that God is preparing a people for a great glory who should never have ever experienced that glory. It's called grace. Look at verse 22. God demonstrates His wrath and power. How? By enduring with much patience vessels of wrath, like the patience and the mercy He showed to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, oppressive, power monger, secular, right? 
This, this dude that's a total narcissist, we'd have had podcasts about him. I'd, I'd have kicked him out of the church by now, I promise you, right? God doesn't do that. God actually endures with much patience this guy. Why? Look at verse 23. Here's the answer. Why does he let some of this goofy stuff go on? And why did he let you do some goofy stuff and endure that with much patience? Here's the reason, verse 23. In order to make known what? <clears throat> Excuse me. The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for what? Glory. All of this sovereign power is in eternal service from before the creation of the world until eternity forever for one reason. That you would be a vessel of mercy prepared for that glory. Do you understand that? Think about that for a second. Everything that is going on in the world throughout all of history is serving the purpose that you and I as Christians would bask in this idea that we were chosen and destined for greater glory than we can ever imagine. And we're, we're drawn to glory. That's why all those kids were drawn to that little room back there because all these lights were going there. Look at the light, that's amazing. Because we're drawn to glory. All of this divine sovereignty is an eternal service, not just for our good, but for our real, 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 real good. Glory. Remember what Romans 8 said. Romans 8 said, the real present sufferings that God takes so seriously with His people, that He gives you His Holy Spirit and He gives you the church to endure, those real trials and present sufferings do not hold a candle to what? The glory that's going to be revealed. Now real quickly under this one, verses 24 and 29, who gets that? And that's what Paul gets to at the end here. This is grace, grace, grace. Basically what he is saying this in the Hosea and the Isaiah passage, if you put them together, is this. He's saying those who were not my people. And notice this that he says in verse 24. This is whether you grew up Jewish or Gentile. I can compete with kids. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jew or Gentile, you were all chosen for this glory. You shouldn't have been God's people. But you are. You were not God's beloved, but now you are God's beloved. You were not to belong to God. Now you're sons and daughters of the King. And notice what he says there. Look at verse 25. I noticed this. I've read this 400,000 times. Not really. But look at verse 25. Her. He's talking about Hosea. You know that story. Hosea was a, let me say it. Children, plug your ears. This is a biblical word. A whore. She was promiscuous. And God said, go marry her. Why, some moral lesson? No, the lesson is this is how I love sinners. And when she goes off in her promiscuous ways, don't just endure it or like love her. That's us. 
Look, I know you're the church. I know you clean up well. And I know you really are created for good works and you want to do good things. And that's beautiful. Do not confuse that. Don't do it. God does not save us because of our good works. 1 Peter 2 says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the stunning, surprising grace of God. One of the privileges of being a pastor is you hear early on when two people kind of start courting and dating and like each other and you kind of see this thing happening and you, you don't want to control it, you don't want to tell people what to do, but you get to witness how God is bringing two people together and then you actually get intel about things. And if you're new to our church, we have a young couple that, that, that got engaged this weekend. Absolutely, celebrate. But here's the funnest part. We got to see them. I got to witness this. It's actually why I didn't get on the dance floor and start dancing. Because as they came in, I watched him all night. Because this is what he was doing. And I know they both felt this. She's a, she's a better dancer. She just wanted to dance and celebrate, which is great. But I just sat there and watched him. Because the entire time, he was basking in her. And I know what was going through his head. Because I was that guy one time. I don't deserve her at all. But I'm about to marry her. She said, yes. And I do not mean if, if you would love to be married and you feel lonely. I actually think this is for you too. Especially for you. If you feel unloved and you feel like you don't have that person, what God is saying is you do. You do. You are loved. In fact, you say it like, like I, through my hard week, the reason I didn't sleep very well the last couple of nights is because I had things on my mind, right? And why do we worry? We worry because we worry about the future. Things that are coming that we're not sure if we can handle. We realize we don't have control. We're just clay. And so we worry and that keeps us up at night. You know what keeps God up at night? The glory He's designed you for. Why is it that the people that were married at that engagement did not lean over and go, hey, y'all enjoy this moment, but I'm just going to tell you it's going to get hard. And just ruin it. Because it is going to get hard. Because they know ultimately their own marriage that's full of glories and suffering is a picture of a greater consummation that's coming. And that's why we get married. That's why it's more than just a contract or just some little note you write. It's real. It's picturing a consummation of glory where God's people are going to be showered with all this love you believe in by faith now. And that's our last point, and I promise it's brief. There is a response here in verse 30. There is a responsibility for every person in this room, whether you understand election or not, whether you believe in election or not, 
there's a responsibility for you. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's a responsibility for you, and that is this, believe. Believe. That's all that verses 30 and 33 are about. He says, you've got this rock, and you see this rock one of two ways. This message is absolutely offensive to you, whether it's sovereignty and election and responsibility. That might be offensive, or just the idea that God had to come to this world and that tension of God and man and God and sin, God taking our sin upon Him, that offends you, then you're going to be crushed by that rock one day. Don't stumble over it, Paul's saying. He's saying, believe that it is not your righteousness. You don't have to fix yourself up, Clay. You have to trust His righteousness. That's it. When our kids were young, I may have told you this before, but I'm going to tell you again. They would come every year and they'd say, what do you want for Christmas, Dad? And I'd say the same thing every year. I want reasonably obedient children. What Paul is saying is these Jewish people, and he says it again in chapter 10, God doesn't want your obedience. That makes some of you uncomfortable. You're never going to understand obedience unless you understand this. These Jewish people misunderstood obedience in the law. They thought what God wants is us to be more obedient than the nations. That is not what God wants. He wants you to trust Jesus' obedience and righteousness. And as you are freed from that, so much fruit of glory to God and love of God and others will flow from that, what the Bible calls faith-producing works. But don't go there yet. Start here. What God wants is your trust. Let me close with this because really what you're trusting God for is everything if you trust Jesus. Everything. We started with the idea of two things that don't seem to belong together. Listen to what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 as he's preaching to the people that were humanly responsible for the death of Jesus. Listen to what he said. Two things that don't seem to go together are what bring us our salvation. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God is sovereign over the cross, you crucified. But what does he tell them? Turn and believe in him. Think about this as we close. How in the world can God hold the tension together that you are fully known by Him everything about you? Everything about you. And at the same time, absolutely 100% loved by Him. Only if the cross is true. Where God declares the unrighteous righteous. Simultaneously in God's eyes, yes, you're a sinner. We got a lot of work to do before glory. I got it prepared for you. Don't worry. But at the same time, perfectly righteous. That's the freedom of the gospel that He is inviting you to.
Let me pray. God, thank you for the gospel. Lord, I, I actually take great delight and freedom in knowing that there are things that belong to you that are none of our business. Whew. We truly can rest. But what you have revealed to us, yes, some difficult doctrines to, to wade through. And God, thank you that all of those difficult doctrines support your overwhelming, surprising grace, preparing your people for something we could never ever deserve. Help us believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.